and welcome to the Writer's Way podcast. I'm your host, Justin DeMarco, and today we're in sunny Sag Harbor, New York, with New York Times bestselling novelist John Searles. Not only is John one of my all-time favorite writers, he's one of my all-time favorite people, so it's only appropriate that he's on the first ever episode of the Writer's Way podcast. John Searles, thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. It's nice of you to say that. I'm happy well, to be here. Thank you for making this possible. And this is a very exciting time because people may know you as the best-selling novelist of Boy Still Missing, Strange But True, and Help for the Haunted. And yeah. Strange But True has been adapted and turned into a major motion picture. Yes, it's very exciting. It's a very, How very cool exciting is that, John? It is really cool. Yeah, I'm very, very excited. Yeah. So I have to ask, looking at my watch and knowing okay. that this book was published yes a long time ago yeah a and little while ago i'm not the best at math yeah but a lot of time has passed yes from 2004 to 2019 <clears throat> what has happened in that time and tell me as somebody who's a writer who yeah. wrote this novel who created these incredible characters that jump off the page at you this story that it had me when i read it I was twisting and turning in my bed. I was like, what's going to happen? Oh, no, this is horrible. Um, it definitely yeah. is strange but true. Yeah, like uh, the title says. <laughs> and you know this will be great for a movie. When I was reading it, I was like, I want to see this on a big screen. Well, thank you for saying that. I, You know, I think all good writing is visual and highly visual and makes it should seem like something that could be really cinematic. So I'm flattered you say that. And I guess what happened with this book was I was... For years, I was a magazine editor at Hearst Magazines, and I usually walked home from the office, but it was a rainy April night, and I took the subway home, and somehow in the subway, I had the idea for this book about a family whose son dies tragically on the night of his high school prom, and five years later, his girlfriend comes to see them on a cold winter night, and she's pregnant, and she makes this bombshell announcement that the father of the baby is their son which seems impossible and as the family goes to investigate the truth they're put on this really unexpected kind of serpentine path uh, of murder and revenge and then I wrote the book very quickly in a rough rough draft on three weeks on 23 pads of paper I wrote it frantically and then I spent a year revising the movie however as you pointed out was another story um, I wrote the screenplay over the course of a year and sold it to this company called Green Street Films. And the producers involved had made um, films like Lost in Translation and uh, In the Bedroom. And they were such a great group of people. And in the very first meeting, they said, we're going to make this immediately. Well, I didn't know that immediately in Hollywood turned out to be 10 plus years. Uh, but there was an that company disbanded. But there was a, an assistant in the room who held on to the writes and kept pushing for it and I would keep in touch with him and he would call me over the years and I'd see him on book tour and he would say to me I want to make two movies one is strange but true the other is a musical about two kids in LA I don't know if it's ever going to get made it's called La La Land heard of it <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> heard of it so Ryan one day Gosling I... <laughs> Emma Stone Damien Chazelle <laughs> exactly and so one day I like opened the paper or probably clicked on a link maybe because I w wasn't reading the actual paper and I was like wait that that's that movie Fred always talks about. So La La Land got made. And then Fred, the young guy, had turned out to be then so this baller producer suddenly. And he, uh, true to his words, uh, made Strange But True. And it's an incredible cast. And I feel really fortunate. Well, that was one of the biggest things when I looked at the trailer and I saw even the movie poster. Amy Ryan, Greg Kinnear, Blythe Danner, Margaret Qualley, Nick Robinson, 
Dreamcast. Yeah, Dreamcast. They're really, really, it's an incredible, incredible cast. And what was so much fun is that I got to go up on set a lot and, and spend time with the actors and spend time with uh, the people working on the film. And it was just so impressive to see. And what was really hilarious was... Uh, well, there's a few hilarious things. One is I have a cameo in the film, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Okay. But also when we pulled up, I was in the car with Fred, the producer, and there were all these policemen. I was like, oh, there must have been an accident. He's like, no, that's they're here like redirecting traffic because of the shoot. But that like, is yeah. awesome. And then I was really. And <laughs> I was wondering if it was it's not a spoiler. I think it's OK to say there's an accident. That's very prominent. There I didn't know if accident. it was like a scene and one of those oh. like Hollywood stories that like you interrupted the director and you're like, what's <laughs> no, going on? Yeah. <laughs> is everybody okay? And you're like, John, this is actually a scene from the movie. And one question on yes. Fred too. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that he was the producer of La La Land. Yes. Was he also the one who received the Academy Award for Best Picture that time? Yeah. Uh, yes. That Faye presented the award and then they were all saying thank you in the middle of Fred saying thank you. They said, actually, we made a mistake. It went to... Moonlight instead. Moonlight, exactly. And the reason I brought that up too is I didn't know who that was, but I thought like when you talk about like grace under fire. Yeah. And in that moment, I was like, this is a good person. Yeah. And something that I think I've been learning and that I've been seeing a lot is that good kind of goes to good. And I would say that you're one of the best people I know. Oh, thank you for saying that. And and just I've never met Fred. But yeah. seeing the way he handled himself and was he so handled gracious, that very graciously. Yes. But I feel like yeah. that would be the same way you would handle it. No, I would take my Oscar and <laughs> run and get in an Uber and go. No, just fair, kidding. No. Fair enough. You could take it and run. Yeah, this is mine, and you're not getting yeah. it back. Um, and another question I had too is, you mentioned uh, the screenplay that you wrote. The screenplay. What did you write the screenplay? I for wrote Strange the original True? screenplay that sold to Green Street that Fred was working on, and then I wrote many subsequent drafts. And then at some point, I was running a big part of a magazine brand, and I was uh, doing books for the Today Show, and I was trying to write a book after Strange but True called Helpful the Haunted, and I just couldn't keep doing revisions. So we brought in another writer uh, to work on the screenplay, and that's how that happened. Okay, because that's what I was curious about, and I wanted to go back to the beginning when you said the pitch basically the elevator pitch yeah too strange but true and one of the things as a writer who is trying to get my own novels published yes i keep hearing the first page the first 10 pages are key if you want an agent or an editor to read it they have to get on board they're looking at the first page or the first 10 pages and your first page to strange but true is a masterclass. It's everything that I've learned so much just from reading it and reading it and reading it over and over Thank again. Thank you, Justin. Could you just follow me around and say really nice <laughs> things all the oh, time? Oh, <laughs> but it's the truth. And I think one of the things, you're one of the most down-to-earth people too. And I want it, yeah, I want you to read from that if that's okay. I do want to say I'm not usually much of a reader. Like when I do book events, I I'll usually just stand up at the mic and try to tell funny stories. Um, but I will read for you, Justin. <laughs> Honestly, that's my favorite because when I go to book events, sometimes I do think it's a little bit awkward when readers read because they're maybe not actors or they're not used to public uh-huh. speaking. Well, there's always that moment where you go to a reading and then they get up at the mic and they're like, <laughs> you know, and, I, and like, and and Meg Wolitzer, the a great writer, I did an event the with female she, persuasion. Yes, she did the at this event we did um, for the American Booksellers Association. She joked about the poet voice that happens like 
I can't imitate it as well as she does. But anyway, so I'm just always very self-conscious reading. However, here and we don't, go. And don't you like how I set it up to add <laughs> even more? One of the things that I oh, hate sure. is when writers read their own work. John, please so, read. Uh, all right. I'm just literally reading the first page, right? Perfect. Is that what Perfect. You're, okay, so the book is strange but true, and this is ch- the start of chapter one. Almost five years after Ronnie Chase's death, the phone rings late one windy February evening. Ronnie's older brother, Philip, is asleep on the fold-out sofa because the family room has served as his bedroom ever since he moved home from New York City. Tangled in the sheets, among his aluminum crutch, balled-up Kleenexes, TV guides, three remote controls, and a dog-eared copy of an Ann Sexton biography, is the cordless phone. Philip's hand fumbles in the dark until he dredges it up by the stubby antenna and presses the on button. Hello? A faint, vaguely familiar female voice says, Philip, is that you? Philip opens his mouth to ask who's calling, then stops when he realizes who it is. Melissa Moody, his brother's high school girlfriend. His mind fills with the single image of her on prom night, blood splattered on the front of her white dress. The memory is enough to make his mouth drop open farther. It is an expression all of the chases will find themselves wearing on their faces in the coming days, beginning with this very phone call. Missy? Sorry it's late, she says. Did I wake you? That's the first page. You're very nice. Justin, you could follow me around a book tour and make John, me feel good. That was phenomenal. Thank you for that. Thank you. But the reason I brought that up was everything is there. Oh. Right? <laughs> everything that a reader needs, anything that an agent needs to decide, can I sell this book? An editor, will people buy this book? It is right there on that first page. Somebody goes into a bookstore, looks quickly. I want to read this one. <laughs> well, I guess I do try to... S- set up a, a sense of dread and menace and also there are two books help for the haunted i started with a late night phone call in this book i started with a late night phone call my editor said okay you can't do that anymore you've done it <laughs> twice but i think you know anytime the phone rings particularly before cell phones when people seem to text all night but when the phone would ring in the middle of the night it's startling and your first question is what's wrong something must be wrong and so I think it just is a good way to, or an evocative way to begin a story with a late night phone call. One of the bits of advice that writers give a lot is if you want to become a better writer, you need to read. True. Very true. And, uh, you know, I learned the hard way that you have to hook your reader. When I, I went to graduate school at New York University and when I got out, I was waiting tables. I was a waiter for a dozen years and I uh, was writing a book and I sent it to a someone who worked in publishing was an editor at a publishing house and they sent back the manuscript with a very polite not quite a form letter but basically rejecting it but then when I took the manuscript out of the box there was a little scrap of paper an in-house note that was mistakenly left with the manuscript and it said I could barely make it to page 60 and I feel really sorry for anyone who has to read the whole thing are you serious I was very like dramatic about it I took to my bed I was like I'll never write again but actually months went by and I did start writing again something new and I I it was a painful but valuable lesson in keeping your reader hooked and so whenever I'm writing whether strange but true helpful the haunted boy still missing I'm always trying to think of the reader on the other end of this equation and what's going to make them turn the next page so one of the things that you helped me with was exactly that. And we have a mutual friend who set up a coffee meeting for yes, us. I adore her. 
Yeah, hey, Brennan will hey, mention Brennan. her. Yeah. Uh, and she's incredible. She's one of my best friends. She's I know how much yeah. you love her. I really adore her. Yeah. And I was done. I was basically at the same point. So I had gotten rejected about 70 something times at wow. that point. And Sorry. I thought, I'm done. No, thank you. Yeah. It's, and it's part of the process. And I've been learning that. And those rejections, one of the things that you actually pointed out to me, you were kind enough to look through the rejections that I got. And you were like, Justin, these are really good. <laughs> And then you actually yeah. shared that story with me. Yeah. And what you said to me was, it doesn't sound like it's your writing. It sounds like it's your story. And it sounds like it's the beginning. It sounds yes. like you need a hook. Yes. And you picked up on that right away. And what was the other advice that you told me? It was start a new novel. And start that's exactly new. what you did. Yes. And yeah. I love that you're passing that on to me. Yeah. I and think you just always us. have to be writing. And Chris Bojalian, who's a terrific writer and a friend, had said Flight to me, attendant, right? Yeah. The, yes. yes. Okay. He's, he's not a flight attendant. No, he wrote a book that's a flight yeah, attendant. Okay. Although my dear friend of mine and my mentor at NYU was a former flight attendant who became a novelist, Anne Hood, by the way, who was great, who gave me so much good advice early on. And she's always writing something new. Chris said to me early on, too, with boy still missing start writing something before the book comes out so you always just i think it actually helps to always be on to something new because uh, then there's always that hope of what, what you're working on yeah and that and that was something that was so helpful and i really appreciate that you were willing to share that with me my pleasure and when i think of you though yeah. the word that pops out well one with your writing it's precision because your writing is very precise but the other word another p word is patience ah, because we were talking even about your journey. So, strange but true, it comes out 2004. It's 2019. Yeah. The movie is coming out September 6th to a theater near you. Make sure yeah. you show up and go see it. But one of the big things is that you're always so patient. You said that you were a waiter for 12 years. 12 yeah. years. Yeah. This movie took 15 years yeah. to see the, to come out yeah. on big screen. Yeah. So how have you always remained so patient? <laughs> Don't you, you want to speed time. things up? Oh, I would love to. I mean, I look at other writers who you know write a book a year and they seem to do it so easily and it's just I've just had to accept it's not my process it's not how it works for me I invest a lot of time and I have a lot of there's a lot of trial and error I don't just kind of outline I you know write a lot by instinct and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and I I often wish I could be faster However, I, I feel very blessed and lucky with my life and I'm really proud of the books I've written so I'm okay with that well yeah. and that's one of the things that it's the precision in your writing that you don't throw away any sentences. Every sentence that you write is spot on. It's entertaining. It's funny. It has heart. It keeps you moving forward. Thank and that's you. something that I strive to do. And it's not easy. But how long does it take <laughs> you to complete those sentences? Because like you said, it's a journey. Time, yeah. And my question is, do you kind of get the first draft down and then you go by sentence by sentence let me edit this or are you i'm not going to move on until this sentence is perfect oh you're so nice to say they're perfect i don't know if everyone would say that but i i just always rework the scenes again and again like when i get up in the morning i start back from the start of the chapter and read it out loud or try to find Anne hood who i mentioned says take your book take your manuscript on a date and that sort of means like print it out take it to a coffee shop take it to the library i love working in libraries take it just somewhere different to kind of see it differently so it's always an exercise in trying to hear the words in some fresh new way so that you can kind of come to the page 
with a clear perspective. So I just rework the pages constantly. And then oftentimes we'll print up the whole manuscript and read from the very top. So it's, I don't know, it's not probably the most um, practical way of working, but it's just how I work. And so. do you read out loud? I read out loud and I have this little, I feel like it's a cheat system, but lately I've done this thing where your Apple, your computer, your Microsoft has a thing where it will read it back to you. And it's the most robotic voice ever. But once in a while, I will just kind of use that again, just to hear it in some different way. And it's the most kind of unnuanced reading, but it helps in a weird way. One of the things that I love too, is that you could understand the time and place in which the story is set. And that was something that was so great. And looking back, uh, is it called microfish? Yeah, microfish. 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 Okay, so microfish, and you mentioned how you love libraries, right? Yeah. So the character Charlene in Strange But True is the mother. And she used to work at a library. And there's a part where she goes back to the library uh, five years after she yes. worked there. Later she on. left on bad she terms. She left on bad yeah. terms. And microfish was, I guess, the way people would research and then there's internet there's an internet room at the library yeah and it's just kind of the beginning days of the internet rooms and libraries yeah and how cool is that though that you were on the pulse of the time oh i'm glad you say that because you know at when i was about to publish this book i remember someone from the publishing house saying maybe you should take these references out because will they date it and i said i just wanted to feel of this moment and i know that later it might feel like old or something or but in a way I just wanted to capture the feeling of that time when cell phones were just new like the character Philip when he first moves to New York someone walks by and I can't remember I think it's a woman and she's talking on her cell phone and, he, and he's like that feeling we all used to have like is that person talking to themselves like there was a time people probably don't remember it where you would actually feel self-conscious walking down the street talking on your cell phone no longer obviously. and there's two things I want to touch on there yeah it's one was you saying and believing in yourself that this is right. This is right, what's right for the story. This is what's right for this time. And you sticking to your guns. Because that couldn't have been easy. When a publisher tells you, John, maybe we should do this differently. And I'm sure you're, you are one of the nicest guys. And I'm sure you're very likely <laughs> to say, oh, if you think that's for the best, I'll do it. But the fact that you were able to say... No, this novel needs it. Well, my I really respect the people I work with in publishing so much and trust their judgment. But the good thing is they also let me speak my voice too. And we kind of have just always worked really well together. So they weren't forcing me, but I remember it was a suggestion. Like, you might want to take out some of this. And I just didn't want to because I thought it captured a very specific time, you know, in our culture. And something that I love too, going back to the technology conversation which was basically today, everybody has cell phones, they have computers. It's a smartphone world. It's yes. how yeah. how we function. Like you were saying, if you go to anywhere in the Hamptons now, everybody's on their cell phones. Yes. Yeah. They're going to check out and they're on their cell phone. One, that's just very rude. Please don't do that. <laughs> but I feel like you see it out here more than anywhere else. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah. But one of the big things was your problems can be solved so easily now because you could track somebody's location. You can yes. do so many different things. So as a writer, those are tools that are kind of taken away from you in 2019 because a reader is going to be like, hey, yeah, why don't they just like check the location or why don't you Google Maps that? Like you could find that really easily. Yeah. In 2004, that wasn't possible. That wasn't possible. But you know what? In the book, I'm, j I'm just finishing a new book and it's set in present day and it actually although it creates those challenges it also gives you a whole new set of opportunities to in storytelling to use text messaging and 
social media within uh, a narrative. And so I've actually been finding it really fun to use as well. Different than this, but but fun. Yeah. <laughs> and if you didn't notice, John is always a glass half full guy. <laughs> so I like the way that you talk about those challenges. And are you okay to talk a little bit about your new novel, the one that you're working on? Oh, uh, not too much. Sorry, okay, no, because I'm the I, same. I, yeah. I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah, I can't talk about anything that I'm working on. I need a finished, completed draft, and then I'll talk about it to anybody. Because yeah. there was, there's been a couple times in my life actually. I'm even like halfway through. It's going great, and you tell somebody like, oh, they'll ask like, oh, what's your novel about? And you tell them, and their reaction like their face drops, or they're like, yeah. oh, well, like you know, like James Patterson's really good. Like maybe you should try to like write a book like that and i'm like like wh like what like that, like that yeah. has nothing to do with anything like did you listen to what i told you and yeah. like yes i would love to sell novels like james patterson but that's not, not what the story is about i know yeah. people say funny things when you're I, I always just keep it within a trusted group of readers and people who i talk to about it when you're sharing early work with and finding a trusted reader, I think you want to look for someone who reads a lot and reads the kind of book that you're trying to write because that person then doesn't mean they have to work in publishing, they don't have to had to have written a book themselves, but if they read a ton of what the sort of thing you're trying to write, chances are they will have the right framework to be able to help you. So because people, even once it's out, say odd things. Like one of my favorite bad reviews, and people always, my boyfriend always says to me like, you always remember the bad ones and said, but one of the bad ones I love is someone was like, there's nothing strange but true about this book. And I'm tired of people using dead kids as a narrative trope. That's why I stay in my house and hang around my cat. <laughs> it was hilarious. I have to find it and send it to you, Justin. It's so, she's so like vitriolic about like strange but true. And, but yet people are always going to say bad things and always have comments or, you know, like, I spoke somewhere for a charity event up on the Cape a few years ago, and I talked about when I was a kid and I would go on trucking trips with my father. For example, do you know what lot lizards are, Justin? I have no idea what a lot lizard is, and uh, I was about okay. to tell you that I did. I was going to be like, I'm very intelligent. I am hosting a podcast. I well, know everything about lot lizards. Well, knowing a lot, lot, what a lot lizard is, I'm not sure it's a sign of intelligence. <laughs> However, you know, my dad growing up was a cross-country truck driver, and I always say my parents would send me trucking sometimes with him to, quote, make a man out of me. And the joke I always say is I'm not sure they got the results they wanted. Oh. <laughs> but... Uh, on those trips at night, these um, the the truck stop prostitutes, who at the time were called lot lizards, it's just what my dad told me when I was ten. They would bang on the door at night and say, "Like you want some company up there, big boy?" And I'd be like, "I'm I'm twelve, <laughs> and I'll also my dad would be asleep, and also I was I used to read my mother's Sydney Sheldon novels on those trips. So I'd be like, and I'm in the middle of a really good Sydney Sheldon novel, <laughs> so no thanks. But I told that story at a charity event on the Cape and. And people laughed. And it's just a story from my life. And then a year later, I got an email from a woman saying how insulted she was that I would tell the story about lot lizards and on and on and on. My point being, people are always going to have some opinion and say something and criticize. Because I was telling a story from my life about something that happened to me as a young kid. And 
I don't know. So just in terms of like your life story, your work, what you work on, you just have to kind of sometimes steel yourself to know that everyone's going to have an opinion about something, whether it be lot lizards or your the topic of your manuscript, whatever it is. And so I don't usually share until I'm ready uh, to share what I'm working on. And somebody who I love to follow or one of my favorite followers on Instagram is Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V. Oh, yeah. And he's somebody who always is preaching happiness, positivity, owning your story. And he's one of those guys who's saying all the time that people are afraid to do things. The reason I didn't start this podcast sooner, I was afraid what people would say about it. Oh, who are you trying shit. to be? What are you trying to do? Or yeah. maybe even stay in your lane. You're a writer, then write. What do you need to be doing a podcast for? And it was one of those things is, who are they? They're, not do they're the ones who are so frustrated with their own lives, as Gary Vee would say. They're in the cheap seats. They're not <laughs> doing it. They're the yeah. ones heckling you, but we're playing the game right now. And that's like yeah. a Gary Vee, straight from <laughs> Gary Vee type Vee. of thing. I like to call him Gary Vee. Well, that's, how, <laughs> that's what he goes by. Yeah, he goes I, by I, Gary Vee. I've never met him. I know of him, okay. but I don't, I've never met him, and I now I'll need to look at his uh, Instagram. And the page, reason, but. though, too, is that he's somebody who has done it, right? So yeah. I should listen to his advice. He's grown a company. He knows what he's doing. You know what you're doing. I don't know. I wouldn't go you that do, far. You do, John, John. And you are one of the most humble. This is where I have to stop you. John, you are one of the most humble people. Your bio, oh. what you've accomplished. Strange But True was named the best book of the year by Salon.com. Correct? It was. Yeah, yes. Thank you. And like, like that would be like John Cyril's like, uh, best book of 2004. Oh. Like that would be how I would like introduce myself. Like, and you're no. like, hell no. And you're like, <laughs> no, no way. I just, yeah, it's not my nature. I just try to write good stories, and I hope that people who like sort of dark, twisty, unique narratives would come to my books and appreciate them and send me a note. I'm always so excited when I hear from people, and I always the type to respond on Instagram and and Facebook and email. Uh, Every once in a while, when it's like a really obnoxious note, I don't respond. But for the most part, I do. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's something that I guess learning and even becoming more secure with yourself too, right? To be able to realize that what this person is saying isn't about me. The person who's writing to you about, oh, uh, you wrote this novel and you're using dead kids as a way to sell it, and I'm home with my cat. Like that's what I took away from that. Well, what's weird about that too is like. I'm tired of people using dead kids. It's like, actually, m my sister passed away very tragically after her high school prom and before her high school graduation. And that was like, when I was writing this book, it's it's not completely autobiographical in that sense. A lot of this didn't happen to me. But the sense of loss and grief and darkness that happens after you experience death, I was putting that into the page. And so much of my writing is informed by that terrible loss that my family suffered so just when people make these assumptions oh he's just using this as a narrative trope it's like actually no it's something I experienced personally but you can't be out there controlling everyone's experience of the book or what they think or experience of the film you can only just do your best work and that's all I try to do is not compare myself to other people just compare myself to myself and just try to do um to live a great life and to do the best work I possibly can. And I, you know, um, read good books and, 
and surround myself with good people. So. Well, and thank you for sharing that too, because that's something like I got the chills when you said that. I didn't even know that, John. Uh, I didn't even know that that was part of your story. And it's yeah. one of those things too, how people can be so quick to judge and not even knowing you and knowing uh, what you've gone through and part of this story, how it came to be is because of that, because that's a big part yeah. of this novel. Yeah, it is a big part. You know, well, after my sister passed away um her best friend years later came back and had visited a psychic and she said she talked to my sister and then my mom got really excited like oh i made an appointment with the psychic i have a six month wait and i'm gonna go and i remember seeing in the lead up to that time those six months my mother getting more and more kind of excited that she was going to get to speak to her daughter who she lost my sister and i just had a bad feeling about it and i remember i was out in las vegas because uh, my partner is a director and he was working on Mamma Mia out there of all things. And I remember sitting in the hotel room and my mom calling and I was watching the lights of the strip go up out the hotel window. And my mom saying she had gone to the psychic and the woman was a joke, as I expected, a total charlatan. And it was one of those things, I see an R, I see a P, I see a V, I see a G. And my mother was so crestfallen and and it was almost like she had to grieve my sister all over again. And I, that was years before I wrote Strange But True. That was years. But it, it just something about that experience just was in left an imprint on me. And then mixed up with my imagination years later on a rainy night, out came the idea for Strange But True. Then many years later, um, out comes this film with such a terrific cast of Strange But True. Something in your work is that I've picked up on is the element of the supernatural but making me believe that maybe there really are ghosts out there. Maybe I should believe psychics. And it's something that not only in Strange But True, but Help for the Haunted, I was believing in ghosts. And I was having nightmares, and then I was hearing noises in my apartment. And I remember I was, Sorry like, about that. I was like, damn this guy. Damn him. Well, I guess what... I would read books growing up like The Shining and, you know, a lot of sort of scary books growing up and I guess I just feel now when I sit down to write the obvious thing is always to have the you know the possessed doll attacking people blood coming out of the walls and to me I feel like as soon as a book or a tv show goes there it's this is just my personal thing I'm sorry but it becomes less interesting because I'm it just seems such an obvious departure from reality and it's now been done so often so it doesn't seem as scary what i try to do is play with the reader's belief to make them wonder what is true so kind of tiptoe up to the edge oh, of and reality do you do it? oh you do it <laughs> and raise these questions and then various possibilities uh as to what is true and that's really what strange but true is about the question of faith and and i tried to do it again and help for the haunted uh so that's sort of my mission. I don't know. So far anyway. Yeah, it's just something that I picked up on reading your work. And I think you talked on a little bit too the importance of your story. And thank you again for sharing about mm. your sister. And then even the inspiration with your mom and seeing the way she was reacting to the psychic and potentially getting yeah. information. And I do believe that your own personal story is what's informing a lot of your work. And I mean this as you for all writers, not just you john yeah but something that i've realized too and i've even heard too like at going to book events book talks hearing that maybe you're only really writing like the same 
story over and over, the same three stories over and over throughout your career, but you're doing it in different ways and yeah. certain themes. Do you believe that theory? Do you think that's true, that you're kind of writing the same story? Well, I used to, in high school, I remember this teachers who teach that thing, like there's only, I don't remember, five basic stories, man versus man, man versus nature. Even at the time I was like, well, what a crock, because every story <laughs> is about the details. And so you can boil anything down to its most basic terms. So I guess it's true in that sense. But to me, every story is about the details and the very specific details. And that's what makes a story unique. So, um, But I do think a lot of it is writing from the same place of inspiration. And for me, so much has been informed by the loss of my sister. And also, I had a very colorful child <laughs> childhood uh with not that wasn't always the easiest um you know my parents got married very very young my dad was a cross-country truck driver so he wasn't home often we lived in a little two-bedroom house with four kids and my grandfather i slept on the floor in a sleeping bag and in my own bedroom i saved money for my paper route and built a little bedroom out in the garage where there was no heat but there was a wood stove are you serious <laughs> i am serious yeah i am serious but um uh, but I love my childhood. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, I would... I, I would have like, never I guessed that in a million I, years. I, well, I would like my sister back. I would like yeah. many of the very bad things that happened during that time not to have happened. But but I do think that all those experiences shaped me as a writer and a person. And it actually informed my love of reading because I was... The, the school where I went to, being athletic was so valued. And that's what made you popular and cool. And I was not athletic in the least and didn't have really the best clothes or anything like that. And so I was not extremely popular. And uh, after school, I lived right near the town library, and I would just go to the library after school and and read everything i get my hands on. And that was kind of my safe place. And that's between that and reading books on trips with my father and just reading my mom's discarded Sidney Sheldon books because she had a bunch of them. All of that just made me want to be a writer. Yeah. And that's so fascinating for me because you are somebody who, like I said, I didn't know you from a hole in the wall. You took, it was supposed to be a 20 minute coffee meeting. You spent two and a half hours with I me. I did. Oh my gosh. No, but you did. But it was, I needed it. I mean, I probably needed a therapist, but you served that role. Um, and you're like, he needs my bill, my, bill, my bill is in the mail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I send it whenever you'd like. I won't be able to pay. Uh, no, I really enjoyed meeting you. And uh, and I remember being in the place where you were when we met, which is, and I'm still there oftentimes when I'm writing each book feels like you're starting from scratch. And so I know that feeling of, will I ever finish this? Does this make sense? You know, half the time, that's what I ask when I turn it into my editor. Does it make sense? Is it too weird? Should I keep going? And you had all those questions about your work and your life. So I very much understand that journey. And so that's why I was happy to talk to you. So. But I was so grateful because you basically inspired me. I was done. I was ready to give up writing. That was it. And game over i'm just gonna get a corporate job or something and that's it my life i'll sail off into mm. the sunset and what you said to me was mm. no you need to write your next novel yeah keep going and keep because each time you're writing you're getting better i wrote a first book that was never published but then it led to me writing boy still missing and then after boy still missing i started another book wrote almost to the end and then scrapped it and wrote strange but true and between Strange but True and Helpful the Haunted, I started another book that I scrapped. Not everything you write is going to be published, but if you can learn from each experience and then use it to make the best, the next thing you write is 
as great as it can be, then I think you'll grow and you will start getting published. And, and you know, th- and thank you so much for that too. And one of the big things that helped me too is a friend recommended The Artist Way by Julia Cameron. Um, I've actually never read that book. I, I've always meant to. Is it great? Well, yeah. it's the Writer's Way podcast is inspired. It's yeah. basically yes. patron saint of the arts, Julia Cameron. Yeah. This is for you. Uh, <laughs> thank you for making this happen because for me, I was working... A, I was working a job. I was a salesman yeah. and I was doing well. And I was originally a writer. I don't even know if you know this, but I started out in Sag Harbor. I used to work for dance papers. I you was an intern when I was 17. Right. Yeah. They um, thought that I was a college junior, uh, but I was a high school junior. And my cousin Maria used to be the shopping editor. She used to have a column, shop till you drop. Oh and my gosh. she didn't tell them my age. And then <laughs> they came back to her and said, Maria, he's in high school. And she goes, can he do the job? They go, yeah, we think so. So she goes, what's the problem? If there's any yeah. issues, come to me. Exactly. And it was just so, so great to want to have that backing and to get into that world. Because if you don't have those types of connections and seeing it, how would you experience something like that? Yeah, I don't know. You, I, how would you? I, you I, don't yeah. think, I don't think I would be on this path. But I think even I've had so many great teachers who have kind of, uh, who have kind of made sure that I write. And even when I get lost, sometimes my teachers will write to me and be like hey i just want to make sure you're writing how are you doing you're a writer and just getting that reinforcement and having that and hearing that for a long time because i know a lot of people don't get that yeah well that's why it's good to surround yourself with supportive people and i had two very important teachers in my life when i was it i went to connecticut state university there was a poetry professor vivian shipley who's a a poet who really encouraged me early on and then ann hood novelist at nyu when i went there who really encouraged me too and so it's good to find those people who along the way can help help encourage you and support you so do you have a child who is applying to college and you want to help but you're not sure how ivy and quill is your answer They're the gold standard in college admission essay consulting and editing services, with an exceptional turnaround rate of 48 hours or less from when the essay is received. Visit ivyandquill.com and tell them the Writer's Way podcast sent you for a special back-to-school savings. This is the Writer's Way podcast hosted by Justin DeMarco with John Searles in Sag Harbor, New York. We're talking about Strange But True his novel that's now a Hollywood film. So, John, one of the things I'm always curious about is when you're adapting the story, what do you keep from the book and what do you change? So something that I realized was uh, Margaret Qualley, and is that her? Oh, Qualley. Margaret Qualley. Sorry to have a name intervention. I won't Sorry, I won't No, but I'm her. sorry <laughs> that Margaret Qualley, because in the novel, Melissa or Missy, uh, because of the accident, she's disfigured. Her face is yes. disformed. Like, and she's missing teeth. And she's, she's missing two teeth, yeah. right? The front teeth. Yeah. And when I saw Margaret Qualley... Qualley. Qualley. Justin, when I'm going to hit you. <laughs> when I saw Margaret, when I saw Margaret... Um, can I say I'm MQ. on the... Can I say I'm on... That's like M in the book yeah. for mother oh, or right, yeah. mother or... mother or Margaret. Exactly. No. Melissa. No. Or Mad Woman. Mad oh, Woman. M for Mad Woman yeah. or Mother. So we'll do MQ for Margaret Qualley. Yeah. Quali, <laughs> just you have a mental block. I am having, I'm having like the Chuck Knob. Just say Margaret. Right okay, <laughs> I know I don't know her. I never met her. We're not on a first name basis. But Margaret is absolutely beautiful uh, in the film. And is she that way the entire film, or does she? No, she is that way the entire film. And they they made a choice with her because I actually said early on, you know, pointed out in the book she's she's a very tragic character and she's disfigured from the accident. She's also very 
haunted seeming and she, you know, stays home at night drinking and praying to the dead and trying to contact the dead. And and what they chose to do in the book, because I, I think they thought, well, no one wants to look at a toothless, scarred girl for an hour and a half on the screen. But also they chose to make her more wholesome and uh, a source of light and hope in this very dark story, you know, and as a novelist, you just have to think at a certain point, okay, well, I wrote the book I wanted to write. And now these people who are experts at what they do are going to do their interpretation of the book for the screen. So there are many things that are different. You know, the book is set during the winter and I, I use that setting that time of year to give this real sense of doom and gloom in the book and dreariness. And I remember when, Fred, the producer, called me and said, well, okay, we're shooting it in June in Toronto and surrounding areas. And I said, oh, so what will you do for winter? Like, pull the leaves off the trees? Because I heard they did that for one of, um, for like the ice storm or something. He said, no, the book's now set in the summer. (laughs) It was just like they just reset it. And I actually thought, oh, it's not going to be the same. And it's not, but it's different and it's beautiful. Like the summer scenes in the woods where uh, Nick Robinson's characters on crutches and running actually feel really lush and and beautiful it's very different than in the book with winter same with melissa's not being disfigured she's this real source of light so it's not exactly well and can i also say too uh amy ryan who's one of my favorite actresses by the way and thank you very easy name to say amy ryan yes uh she's a really great person and the like the best TV shows, The Office and The Wire, two very different yeah. TV I've shows. I've actually never seen The Wire, but I, it's I've phenomenal. seen The Office. And Check she's, it out. And, she's fabulous. In and that, even yeah. uh, the recent movie, Late Night with Mindy Kaling, I saw that in theaters, and she was in that, and she's always incredible. Yeah, she's. I haven't seen that yet either, but I want to. I'm behind. But, but she is, uh, Amy Ryan is just an incredible actor, and I know what you're about to say is, in the book, Charlene is a plus-size woman, yes. woman, and... Uh, Amy's not a plus size woman and Amy talked about that with the director and it, and I think she embodies the essence of the Charlene character and does such a fantastic job that it's the physicality of that character um, doesn't matter so much in terms of the literal how much does she weigh what's her body like it's like Amy captures that sort of bitterness and anger but then also what I found so incredible about her performance is that it's so calibrated because throughout the film you could see her start to hope and believe that what the Melissa character said to her could be true. And there's a scene when she arrives on Blythe Danner, Gail, the landlord's doorstep, and you can see she's starting to soften. Another incredible actress. Another actor. You can see she's starting to soften. And I don't know, it's just that performance is just so incredible to me. So I went to a book event uh, that Tom Parada uh, was doing. It was for Mrs. Fletcher, but he was talking about his experience with his novel election, which he had a really hard time selling. um, And he was able to sell it because they were going to do a movie based on it. So they decided, okay, well, if the movie is going to come out, we might as well publish the book. So Tom Parada, you know, he's a hilarious guy. Yeah. So he tells us, I don't know him, but but I I don't know him well either. I just met him very briefly at the event, but he told this hilarious story that somebody introduces him on set and like he really wasn't allowed on set and things like that. Like they kind of kept him away from the project. Uh. So somebody introduces Tom Parada to Matthew Broderick, who is the star of the film. Reese Witherspoon was also another star. Uh, And the person goes, hi, you know, uh, hi, Matthew, this is Tom Parada. Uh, He wrote the novel and Matthew Broderick goes, this is based on a novel. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. And he had no idea because the director believed that the adaptation had to be so different and you could do whatever you wanted with the material that you didn't owe anything to the novelist. And then Little Children, which he co-wrote and he actually was nominated for an Academy Award for it, was a very different experience where they went, and this is according to Tom Parada, I hope I'm paraphrasing him correctly, but they went basically chapter by chapter and they made sure that it stayed true to the novel. Wow. So he had two very different experiences. Yeah. And I guess my one question was, do you know if the actors on set, because it seemed like you actually had some good experiences. You talked about you and Blight Danner getting so close that she was putting that she was putting her fingernails in your arm. <laughs> um, and I was wondering, did any of them mention reading your novel or did uh, they do it for inspiration? Margaret like Qualley, when she showed up on set, she said, I, I read the book and actually talked That's about the so book, cool. which is really, really great. And she's, we talked to the characters very different than my character in terms of the physicality. So we talked about it and actually Blythe had brought a copy the book um and then when i saw her later she said you know what's so weird is i went back to my trailer and i opened to the scene that they were shooting and she said um there's actually this bit that's not in the script but she would say and then she like in some of the takes did this part of it and so that was really great there were some actors who who the, the thing about strange but true is you you know philip one of the main characters hurts his leg and you don't really know how it happened. And in the book, there's sort of, it leads you to believe it was like some sort of sexual thing involved. It turns out, spoiler, it wasn't that. But what's interesting is some rumor had started on the set that like this Philip character has all these wild sexual exploits (laughs) and is into S&M and all these things. And I think people just, I think we're staring at me thinking that that was that was me in my life. Um, but uh, so I had to do some correcting for people who hadn't read it. Who were like, yeah, in the book, this guy's I'm into some really dark stuff. And I was like, no, actually, it's not. It's not the case. But um, strange, but true or fiction. Yeah, exactly. Fiction. Yeah, fiction. But there, you know, you do put a lot of true things into as a writer. I forget who said it said writers are like magpies like you're always gathering little bits and pieces and the cottage is in the book you know when I was I guess in my 30s my my grandmother moved to these her house where she had lived for years my step-grandmother and moved to these this house rented from these landlords and there were three cottages the one she lived in the one the landlords lived in and then the one next door that was completely fixed up but never rented and I would always stare over at that and she I would say why doesn't it rent it she said I don't know no one ever rents that cottage and again, like the story I told about my mother and the psychic, I didn't have like a light bulb moment then that I was going to use that. It was just later on, it came back to me as the setting for the for the book. And so it's weird as a writer, and you probably discover this with your own writing, Justin, is as you're just going about your business and living your life, different experiences happen or different things people say, and you end up then putting them into the book later. So. And I wanted to touch on two things really quick. One is just... I know how important your grandmother was to you because it was mentioned uh, in the acknowledgments. And she's the best. I'm glad that you were able to mention that. Yeah. And the other big thing was there's a scene in the novel, and this is one of my favorites. I don't care if it's spoiler spoiler or not. I don't care. (laughs) Uh, But Philip, the main character, the one, the guy who is on, who has the crutches, uh, gets in a car and he starts driving and a police officer pulls him over. And (laughs) he, (laughs) he doesn't realize that she is a very heavy person and thinks that she's pregnant and he gets an education in that scene (laughs) and that is something that when i was reading it's one of those moments where it's like huh like i actually have experienced something similar (laughs) 
and then I looked in the back of the book is there's a strange but true or like fiction area <laughs> and you mentioned that and that was also something based on your life that you put into the novel. Yes. Well, I thought it was really with whenever the paperback comes out, I always call it like the DVD extras because I, I like to love put fun things in the back of the paperback. And so for Strange But True, I thought what would be appropriate would be like sort of just things from my life that's either fact or fiction. And for years, I was an editor at Cosmopolitan. One summer, I was very fortunate to get a sabbatical to go away and finish a book. When I came back, I can't even believe I did this. <laughs> I saw the an editor at the time who worked in fashion. And I, everyone knows you're not supposed to do this, but I... I saw her, she was adjusting a rack of clothes and I, she was holding the rack of clothes over her stomach and I, and I said, oh, she's pregnant. And I, I can't even believe I did this. I know how bad this is. I said, are you hiding a baby back there? You are hiding a baby back oh there. My and God, I actually John. rubbed her stomach. I John! Know, I, was, I know, I was a fucking idiot. And she said, no, I just got really heavy since you left. And she was really the fashion heavy. editor? she was that makes it and even worse though. i know and then i found out later there were reasons for what the way her body was changing i it was like everything went into slow motion the room started spinning i was like no <laughs> i i like rounded the corner i apologized stumbled away collapsed in the arms of the the art director at the time and i was like i just did the worst thing and then i went home i was gonna send her flowers to apologize then people said no just let it go. Don't do that. I like. I was laying on the couch, and like Thomas, my boyfriend, came home and was like, "What happened? What happened?" I'm like, "I did the worst thing. I actually am the person. I never want to make people feel bad." I, and so it was the worst. I just felt bad for weeks and weeks on end. And then I think, I don't know, when I was doing strange but true and putting real life true things into it, I just put that moment in it because I remembered the agony of it. So <laughs> that's all. You know, I had so many favorite scenes in the novel. And I'm wondering, one, you as a writer, if there are any scenes that were just so memorable and 15 years later stick with you. Um, and if you had any favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, well, what's funny is there's one very dark, very terrible scene in which an accident happens. And I got to go up on set to see that scene. And I kept saying, oh, good, I'm getting to see my favorite scene. And people were like, that's awesome. you're messed up. That's your favorite <laughs> scene in which someone dies. But and I, are I, you like, have you read the novel? <laughs> yeah, have, exactly. Hi, John Searles. Hi, John yeah. Searles. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah. So I, they recreated the the landlord's basement, Gail and Bill Irwin. Uh, and I think they actually changed their name slightly for some legal reason. But in the book, they're Gail and Bill Irwin. And they recreated their basement on a soundstage up in Toronto. And it was just a very fun day watching and seeing Blythe Danner, play Gail Irwin and Brian Cox who's fantastic playing Bill Irwin and um, without giving too much away there's a stunt double used during that scene and uh, was it you it was not me <laughs> okay, no. okay. but uh, the stunt double has to fall down a flight of stairs backwards and it was this w this woman who she did it first time they were like didn't really look Really you didn't sell it. You didn't sell it. We're going to push you down the stairs this time. They did it the second time. And I remember I was sitting next to Blythe, who's just the nicest woman. And uh, we were like holding on to each other because watching it from outside, watching it on a video monitor, we're in this, they're in this recreation of the basement. And when the character goes topples backwards down the stairs, it was so harsh. And the way her body just flipped sideways against and her neck twisted. Ooh. Everyone on the set gasped. 
Like, like what I just did? I was <laughs> like, oh, just you explaining like, it. dug her nails into me. We were both like, and then we both kept saying, I think something's wrong. And they said, everyone be quiet. And it was, it felt like an hour, but it was probably five, ten minutes. Everyone was quiet. And the stunt supervisor went into this recreated basement. And it was just quiet. And we all said, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Everyone. It was such a tense moment. And then finally you could hear them whispering a little bit. And then the stunt court supervisor said she's okay she's okay and the woman came out her name was anita and she's an incredible very fit beautiful young woman and i she had ice packs all over her neck and i kept saying are you okay and i said make sure or do you live alone someone someone should be with you tonight because then what later she's like this is what we do i'll be fine i'll be fine but you can tell she injured herself and then every time i would go back up to toronto i would ask the driver or like different people. How was Anita? How was Anita? Because she and that's was why you're there. incredible. But that's why who you are. <laughs> I just really worried about her. And I oh, absolutely. To so, um, but it was a great moment in play. And <laughs> I thought I just <laughs> taking our hands to each other. She was like, we were like, something's wrong. She's dead. I think Blythe was like, I think she's dead. I, I think and she's I was dead. in like my warp mind. I'm so glad that Anita is okay. alive and well. Yes. But I was going to be like, and that's why we know it took 15 years to make this movie because it got shut down for 14. <laughs> uh, yeah, the lawsuit exactly, is pending. Yeah. Uh, you know, another <laughs> thing, though, about the time it takes to make a movie is films like this aren't made as often anymore. If True. If very true. If it's Spider-Man or some superhero movie, those seem to get so much attention and so much money for obvious reasons. So like a darker, smaller family drama slash mystery or what they call like a genre hybrid is not as easy to make so it takes longer to get funding and and things like that but that's also part of the reason it took a bit and for me those are the types of movies that i enjoy and even i mean they call it indie but like i wouldn't call this an indie movie right like it's one of those weird things like this type of movie should be made but like you're saying it seems like it's like blockbusters now like blockbuster movies like hundreds of million dollars to make yeah or like horror films that are shot like very cheaply um or inexpensively and that in between, right? Maybe the yeah. ten to twenty million dollar movie isn't being the made tr- as, as much, and that's all the more reason go out and support it if you want to see more of these types of movies. September sixth in a theater near you, New York, Boston, Dallas, yeah. Chicago, L.A., Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Sarasota, Tampa, St. Pete, St. Pete. See, but Denver. see this yeah. movie show up because that's what's important. If the numbers are there, then they're is a need for it. People, if you can say, hey, look at the number of people who showed up to see this, maybe Hope for the Haunted then gets made right away let's too. Let's hope. There's right? a great producer or boy still missing. with that, but let's hope. Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, I'm just going to keep my head down and keep finishing my new book and go from there. So, As soon as I saw Greg Kinnear and knowing that he's a hotshot doctor in Florida, and I was like, perfect casting. <laughs> I was like, I see him 100%. In I was part, like, yeah. yeah. I was like, I know we talked about Margaret. I know we talked yeah. about Amy Ryan. So I'm not going to say her last name, Margaret. I've stepped on that too Quality. many times. I'll say it for you. Thank you. Um, and Amy Ryan, I was curious about that. And Greg Kinnear, though, I was like, that's a slam dunk. Yeah. And Brian Cox and Blythe Jenner. And also, there is one other cast member you might be forgetting, and that's me, because I have a little cameo really? in the film. John, yes, John Searles. <laughs> yeah, so I have a little cameo um, where I play, of all things, this is a real stretch for me, uh, an author being introduced at a library event. That's, <laughs> so, I remember that. That was in the novel, though. That's actually a yes, scene so in the I'm novel. Yes, so I'm that author. And so what? Well, the funny thing is I was driving back to the city, and I got a voicemail 
before the shoot and they said hi we're calling from the strange but true wardrobe department which is surreal in and of itself to have someone did you call pinch from the yourself wardrobe. in the car said, yeah, you're well, like this is just, real life they said we're trying to figure out what your character and author would would wear to this library event um so we're pulling clothes and i Call back and said, it just so happens I have a closet full of clothes <laughs> an author would wear to a library event. So they said, great, pack your stuff. So next thing I know, I'm up on the set and I'm going through all the things. And it, this this was the shoot was with Amy Ryan in uh, a library. And uh, they chose this pale blue sweater, not unlike what I'm wearing now. And I'm about to go on and just do this. I don't have any speaking lines really, but I'm just being introduced at a library. And the wardrobe person came up to me and said, we have to talk to you. I said, what? She said, we have to tape your nipples. What? <laughs> I said, wait, I covered them in slice of what? And they said, they're um aggressive. They're pointing out from your sweater. So I was like, all right. So I left my shirt. She puts tape on each of my nipples. And then the, we do the shoe. Amy Ryan was so great. And then I hadn't even gone to my hotel yet. So when I got to my hotel, one of the producers said, oh, do you want to get a drink? And I said, it was so late. I said, no, I'm just going to go upstairs tear off my nipple tape and fall into bed and it was at the moment when the the woman at the hotel at the da- front desk was handing me my key <laughs> i think she was like wow what kind of sick shit are you into <laughs> and that's just one like of those ho- hollywood magic <laughs> hollywood magic ladies so, and gentlemen you wonder yeah. what goes into making a movie <laughs> so i read the paperback of strange but true but there were times that uh i was on the subway so i got the kindle version too oh well and it's such a different experience, but it was a good experience because there were times where it was just easier for me. I'm on my phone, but I was able to read as well. Yeah. Do you read on Kindle? Do you read hard copies? I still copies? read books. Same here. Yeah. I'm the same, but it was just something I needed to do yeah. time-wise. Yes. I mean, I would not be opposed to reading on my phone, but I just, I, I'm very fortunate that publishers send me a lot of advanced copies of books. And so I, and I read. Humble I, brag. I tell, no, that wasn't meant to be, but I, t- I read a lot of books in the bathtub and also I'm, hesitant when someone lends me a book because usually they get it back and it's waterlogged it's a sign i liked it if it's waterlogged and at least you give it back yeah but sometimes people are like no thank you you destroyed it i've been known to buy people new books after like trashing the ones they lent me so you might not want to lend me a book if you're listening but one of the questions that i had uh is actually the character philip in strange but true and there were some similarities to your life uh so philip's a poet you're a writer uh you talked a little bit or you wrote about uh, Philip and Philip was lonely and it's something that I've experienced being a novelist to do work you need to be by yourself and you need to or at least for me I need to be by myself I just want to correct that I need to be by <laughs> myself I need to be in a room I really don't like writing in like cafes or places no. or I've heard people yeah. even say sometimes too like oh like don't you drink when you write like you know oh, write drunk and <laughs> edit sober and I was like no as soon as I have any alcohol I can't no. perform do yeah. you find the same way or uh, I don't, yeah, no, not one to have to, I don't drink a ton, but when I drink, I, the last thing I want to do is work and, and write, but coffee, I'm a big coffee Same person here. Coffee and all I'm day. an early morning person usually. And I love to write on airplanes. Like, uh, I can't do that. W- I just flew to Florida for a 90th birthday celebration on Yana, 90, uh, who happy was birthday. happy and enjoying dinner at her 90th birthday and drinking wine. But, uh, on the plane, I got so much done. I just take a legal pad. Then there's something about airplanes. When everyone says about Wi-Fi and airplanes, I never want the Wi-Fi in an airplane. It's like there's something great about just being up there and working. Uh, libraries I like, but coffee shops not so much. So it just was whatever what's right for you. you know? And uh, and what I wanted to bring up with Philip was going back to the, the feeling of yeah. loneliness. And it was something I expressed to you when I met you. And you advised me to start a writing group or join a writing group. 
And yeah. that's been a game changer because I've had such a good support system with my writing group. Uh, and it's not even one. I mean, they helped me edit the novel and they're incredible editors. Like they work in the magazine and publishing industry. So that's like a huge plus. Yeah. Uh, and the thing I think that helped me too is I always felt that writing, it had to be my words. I didn't want anybody else's thoughts coming in. And this novel for me feels so different because there's so many different people's hands on it. And I feel like it makes it so much better and stronger. Do you uh, find that? Do you have trusted readers that you go yes. to? Or do you have yeah. a writing? I'm assuming you have a writing group. I don't have a writing group, but you I did years ago. You recommended to me don't have a writing Well, because group? I did it when I was at NYU uh, taking Ann Hood's classes. There was just such a tight group of writers. And I always joke, like, within a year after graduating, they all left and did other things. And I was like, I was the idiot who stuck around for 10 more years until I finally got published. But I... Um, I loved that time and having the input from them and I never really was able to find that in my life again. However, friends who read, like Chris Bojalian, a novelist friend who I mentioned, he read my most recent manuscript and called me up and we talked about it and he just said with one sentence, the thing I realized this was a very early draft, he said, the writing's great, the characters are great, it's just missing a sense of doom that you do in your, so well in your other books. Thank you, Chris. And it just made something click for me so I actually find that that's so helpful to to sometimes with Thomas my partner I just today sat here and read a scene out loud to him just hearing myself read it out loud you know he works in theater and he always says the moment he invites in an audience and they sit in the seats before the curtain even goes up he instantly already knows just by the fact that there's an audience present you know and oftentimes you might know that too when you hit send on something you've written as soon as you hit send you're like oh wait i didn't do that and then you're like read this version instead then an hour later read this version <laughs> you instantly start do you do that things. though if i if i send it off i feel like i don't send it anymore that's it oh no i'm like the worst as soon as i send it i see all the flaws crystal clear but i'll tweak it i'll tweak it on my own but yeah. if i send something no, off, I i'm not gonna the person wait don't read that <laughs> I know. read version 7.77 yeah uh, it's yeah. this weird phenomenon that happens to things as soon as you send it off you let go of it and somehow the a clarity comes i and don't know this for has me been a theme of our conversation though so patience like you said that it 10 years for you to get your novel published from the mfa experience yeah to getting yeah. published yeah. and so patience 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 and for me, that was something that was very difficult. And I've been learning, just enjoy the process. Uh, make sure I'm learning along the way that that's kind of the journey as well. Uh, and it's something that I keep hearing over and over. And I think I want to stress and get across to other writers too, which yeah. is the importance of having patience, right? Especially in like an instant gratification society, because I was somebody that I was writing magazine articles because I had that instant gratification. And for me, writing a novel and knowing it's going to, take a lot of time and you not getting people to see time. it yes. yeah you and know, maybe people will never see it yeah well you just have to write it for yourself i think that's the first rule you have to write it for yourself and really enjoy it if you don't there was one book i was writing it was so boring i would fall asleep <laughs> i was writing it that's a bad sign everybody but um i scrapped that book but wally lamb who's a, a fantastic writer he wrote I know this much is true she's come undone which was an oprah pick i think both were oprah picks uh and he's a friend and has been a mentor in the past and he he when I very first met him and I was writing and a waiter and wanting to be published he signed she's come and done for me and he wrote enjoy the journey and I just always think of that how important it is as a writer to just sort of there's going to be many ups there's going to be many downs fantastic moments setbacks and you just have to remember 
that you're fortunate to be doing it and um, just to enjoy the journey. So, And one of the things that was so nice, too, talking about an inscription in the novel, uh, when I met you, I had you sign a book for me. Did I write Enjoy the Journey? Sorry, no, no, you didn't write Enjoy <laughs> the Journey. Uh, and I didn't see what you were like. I wasn't going to read yeah, what you yeah, signed yeah. because I saw you writing. And you wrote, I can't wait to see one of your books on the shelves yeah and I, I can't that, it's true but mm-hmm. i thought that was such a nice <laughs> well, thing well it's say. true and i can't wait and we will it'll happen one day and you'll see and i'll be first in line to buy a copy justin so like the intro music and want to hear more go to itunes spotify or wherever you listen to music and search marcus bennett There's something that is in the paperback version of Strange But True, and it inspired me to ask you a couple okay. of Strange But True questions. Okay. <laughs> and I have to, or I want to find out whether it's Strange But True or False, and you tell uh, me. True or False. So it's a little okay. game. All right. I'm, I'm up for game. Okay. I like a good perfect. game. All okay, right. Perfect. So, number one. Okay. Strange But True or False. The short story writer, O. Henry, used to contribute for Cosmopolitan. I would say true, because strange but true. <laughs> strange but true. You got it yes. right, but you got it wrong. <laughs> strange but true. Strange, strange but, true. but true. Because Cosmo used to be Cosmo before Helen Gurley Brown had many different uh, iterations. It was a magazine for yellow journalism during the war. It was a literary magazine. That's exactly why it was a literary the, magazine. All about Eve. That film was based on a short story that ran in Cosmopolitan. I did not know Mark that. Mark Twain wrote for Cosmo, I believe. Yeah, okay. they were all, for Having been an editor there for many years, I know probably more about Cosmo than most people. Well, that so, was why yeah. I was just doing research because I wanted to ask questions that tie into your life, your career. Yeah. And it was something that I had a feeling you would know it. But yeah. <laughs> I figured yeah, you were the books editor there. You, en- you were the editor at large there. Yeah. Uh, you were the editor at Cosmo for many years. But I always thought of Cosmo as... The women's magazine. So for me, I was like, what? Jack London yeah. wrote for Cosmo? <laughs> yeah. I was like, maybe yeah. I should write for Cosmo. <laughs> it's like a little bit different now. It's a little different now, yeah. Um, okay, so number two. Greg Kinnear, who's yes. one of the stars in the movie Strange But True, was a host of Ease Talk oh. Soup. Strange But True. <laughs> I and remember that is being correct. in high school and watching, or whatever that was, watching on the TV in the living room, him on Talk Soup. And he was always kind of funny, snarky when he did it. He was he was really fantastic in Talk Soup. Yeah. And he won an Emmy Award, which I didn't know either. He won a daytime Emmy for, for Talk Soup. For talk wow. Soup. Pretty cool, right? Good on you, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this one is just a random one. Squirrels are behind most power outages in the United States. Strange but true or false? I think false. No? Strange, <laughs> strange but true. true. Strange That's true. true. Really? Okay. Well, and keep in mind, like, I'm getting this information. I'm lame. getting this information. I could have gone it from, like, a bogus site. Yeah. It's funny because my new book has uh, the woman is married. I said I wouldn't talk about it, but it's married it's a to different. a guy who was a trouble man. That's what they call them for the power company. And I interviewed yesterday. There was a guy who came to fix our lines this summer, and I stood up from a dinner party running outside. He was up in the aerial lift is the technical name he called me but the cherry like picker that. thing and i was like i need to interview you <laughs> he was like whoa back off i love um, that but so it's funny he didn't tell me that the squirrel thing no well maybe it's it not him. true find out though because we may have to do an edit yeah we better be like, an, people, up, be like yeah. an update but i love that that somehow tied in and like synchronicity and believing like there's a creative force or a higher yeah. power or something like where would that question come yeah. from and so it it's funny to, that you asked that yes yeah. yeah. um okay so your novel strange but true 
Um, and even Help for the Haunted, there's religious elements and religious themes. Yes. So this question has to do with that a little bit. So roller coasters were invented to distract Americans from sin, strange but true or false? <laughs> I think false. Is it true? Strange but true. <laughs> uh, in the late really 1880s, <laughs> businessman Lamarcus Thompson didn't like that people were going to saloons and brothels. So he built a roller coaster and put it in Coney Island. Wow. Because Coney Island was a very was that the first roller place. coaster? I don't know if it was the first roller coaster, um, <laughs> but I looked that up, and for strange but true, I thought that was just an interesting random yeah, fact, good. and it had okay. to do with sin. some two for two so far. Okay, so th- this, this is the final question. Okay. We'll see how you do. Oh God. So this is five. I'm nervous. So uh, question five. We're gonna see if you're a winner or uh, <laughs> a loser. I didn't want to say <laughs> that. A winner or not so much of a winner. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. I'm trying this to get the. It's 2019. <laughs> the and everybody's say. a winner. Exactly. You win. I win. We <laughs> yeah. all win. Uh, we're doing this podcast, so we won. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so five. Okay. It's impossible to hum while holding your nose. You can try it if you want to. Mm. Strange but true or false? false. <laughs> I just hum. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? You? I don't try that again. Hold your nose. I'm not hearing anything. You're not. I hear it. I'm not no, hearing okay. anything. <laughs> Let's right. see, try, John. <laughs> so I can't do that anymore. Because you can't get anything out. Oh, but okay, it's true. Strange but true. <laughs> strange but true, yes. Okay. Okay. And if you didn't notice, I just said everything was strange but true, or hopefully strange but true, which may not be. <laughs> so this game may have been a waste. <laughs> uh, but I just wanted to plug your movie and plug yeah, your movie well, and plug thank your novel. You. Thank you so much. <laughs> so you everything asked was so strange many good but questions. true. I can't, Justin, I really can't wait to read your book. And I really appreciate you just reading my work and taking the time to have me on your podcast and I wish you all the best. I can't wait to tune in for the other writers you have on. And um, just thank you so much. I'm really grateful. John, thank thank you you. so much. Uh, And I am just so excited and so proud of you. And you're one of the most humble people I've (laughs) ever met. And I wish you just had like a little bit more like ego. Uh, I would love that. I know. I'll work on it. Okay. Then you'll be like, wait, I've created a monster. Yeah. Who is this diva? I want John back. Yeah. Um, but And it's just a reminder, too, something that I do want to mention. Obviously, September 6th, go see the movie Strange But True. Incredible cast. Amazing story. You want to see this, but also read the novel, too, because there's so much time that went into creating it. And line by line, I'm not blowing smoke here, line by line, if you're a writer... You can learn so much from this novel about story, pacing, characters, 3D characters. That's something that you hear a lot. Uh, And just keeping audiences engaged and interested. So on that note, we'd like to thank John for being the first ever guest of the Writer's Way podcast. (laughs) Best-selling novelist. I said that I would have best-selling novelist on my podcast. First one, best-selling novelist. John, (laughs) we did it. High five. Thank you so much. High five. five. Thank you. Thank you so much, (laughs) John. Go see Strange But True.